This is the Mindful Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vic. Excited that you're here. This podcast is all about diving deep into the mind and understanding this experiment or this game we call life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The biggest battle we will ever have to face is the battle between you and you. It's the battle of taking your mind to that limit and then breaking through. On the Mindful Experiment podcast, we will share concepts, universal laws, and interviewing individuals who have done just that, who have gone through the dark times and through those moments allowed their light to shine bright. I'm your host, Dr. Vic Manzo, and I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and taking this journey with me as we discover different avenues to break through those limits, expand your reality, and evolve into the person you desire to be. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey guys, this is Dr. Vic, and you're listening to another episode on The Mindful Experiment. In this episode, I had the great opportunity of interviewing Chris Kawaja. And Chris, um, amazing guy, has gone through, he has all the escalades and the credentials and so much more uh, to to back up his position on what he sees and what he does. he has created something called the ultimate liquidity portfolio. He wrote a book and talked about how to stash that cash. And in that we discuss all these different things, but just to give you a little background about Chris, um, he holds his bachelor's of arts from Stanford university and an MBA with high distinction from Harvard business school. Chris spent the early years of his career on wall street, Goldman Sachs and Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund, where he developed his skeptical eye towards traditional finance advice, financial advice. He developed his unique investing outlook for his own personal portfolio, and he now owns a variety of assets ranging from e-commerce businesses to legal sediments to real estate. He's the owner of the e-commerce business BigChill.fom and is the founder and author of the Upwarding.com, where he discusses topics ranging from mindfulness to crowdfunding. Highly recommend checking this out, uh, checking his stuff out. We get into this. We talk a little bit about the mindset in the beginning. We get into mind and things like that, how he went from where he was to where he should have been to be successful and what really meant to him and made that shift in his career. But then also we get into the whole, what is the ultimate liquidity portfolio? What does it mean? What, how is it a tax efficient strategy to help you have high performance in markets of all stripes and so much more? I think this is really critical uh, because, you know, in today's society, we talk about the savings account and the whole process of that and so much more. And I thought this was great because this plays a huge role on the mind. It plays a huge role on your life. And it's how do you become more mindful 
consciousness of money and how you can start to use strategies and systems to really help you develop to build more of a solid foundation when it comes from a financial standpoint to really help you thrive more. So without any further ado, here is Mr. Chris himself. Chris, welcome to the show, bud. Thank you, Dr. Vic. Uh, I'm excited to have you on. Uh, I've looked you up. I've checked up what you're up to. I like what you're doing. Uh, money is a big thing. I like the new book you have, Cash that, Stash That Cash, uh, and, and so forth. So I'm looking forward to the next 40, 50 minutes of wherever this is going to take us. I can't wait for the journey. Let's get started. Awesome. So speaking of journeys, where, how did you get into what you're doing now? It's a great question. And I like to say that things always make sense in the rear view mirror, but they, they don't when you're looking out the windshield. And I think my life is no different. The, I grew up in Canada. I was a very good student in high school. And, you know, obviously when you're a good student, there's this path that everyone tells you to go on. I was the valedictorian of my school. I got into Stanford. I left cold Toronto and visited Stanford and everyone was in bikinis. So I ended up choosing that. Uh, went to Stanford and then I went and worked on Wall Street with Goldman Sachs, which is this brand name uh, Wall Street firm. I ended up going to Harvard Business School. I did very well there. And then I took a job at a hedge fund, married this great lady. And, you know, I was just following this path that was, quote, the path that people go on. And I sometimes get these questions. You know, you had these jobs that and these experiences that everyone strives for. And I think that's exactly the trap because. I woke up one day and I was in my 30s and I was married to a woman I love who I absolutely adore still. And I had a job that was the job I thought I wanted. And I had great kids and I was living in San Francisco where I thought I wanted to live. And everybody told me it was a great place to live. And there was just something that didn't feel correct. There was something that just didn't settle in my, in my intuition. And thank God I listened to it. Because I've since learned that there are really two ways that the universe will smack you. One is everything's going right. And you look around and say, this can't be it. There's more to life than this. And the other way, which is the more commonly known way, is everything's falling apart. The fact is they both lead to the same place, which is, which is a chance to really introspect and figure out what you truly want. And that begins the process that I like to call the hero's journey process, because that's the framework that I've learned in. But it involves many steps, and, and that's how my journey started, is really just looking around and saying, look, I've got the financial success I want. I've, I've got all these brand name things I've done, and everybody says that this is it, and this is what I should be striving for, and I got there, and then I walked from it. Um, you know, I've, I reinvented my career. I, I became certified in Reiki. You know, I've, I've begun writing, you know, started e-commerce business, a million things like that. And just started really following more how I wanted to be in the world, listening to my intuition more. And it's been an amazing journey. And looking back, I can't believe how different my life is, but also how fulfilled I am. I mean, if you ask me today on any given day how fulfilled I am and how close I'm living in alignment with how I want to be living my life, it's, it's an almost perfect match every day. And when it's not, I know how to tweak it the next day, which is very different from the experience I had from my early thirties and earlier. So what was it? Cause you know, if, if somebody's listening to, you know, if people are listening to you right now, they're, they're, you know, you went to Stanford, then all of a sudden you, you went to Harvard business, you, you're working for Goldman Sachs, you're on wall street, you're doing all these amazing, great things. And you just one day just said, done, this isn't for me. What was it? How did intuition come to you? Was it in the sense? Cause I love how you brought up. There's two things, the way the universe shows you everything's going right, but you don't feel fulfilled and or everything's just falling apart and going wrong and i've been on both of those roads um, yes. and i know you have also and it's one of those things what was the internal communication feelings what was it that you were just like yeah no this is i, I need to get out like was it um what did, what did you go through what did it feel like so my experience is that the universe will keep knocking louder and louder at the door until you listen <laughs> so it's really a question of when you want to listen i think there are a couple components to what that listening means. The first is there's just a weird unsettled feeling in your gut. When I've talked to people who've been through these experiences and I've been in a lot of men's groups and 
and dis deeper discussions with friends, understanding how they go through these transitions. And very frequently, there's just something that starts not feeling right. And what I love about the Hero's Journey framework, which we may or may not get into, is that it discusses that first, you know, that first insight where something just doesn't quite feel like it's going correctly. There's a movie, The Matrix, which a lot of people have seen, and in it, Keanu Reeves, there's just something that doesn't fit right. And I, I believe that sense, that intuition is usually how it starts. Now, it has to be, has to be, must be coupled, in my experience, with some kind of self-reflective practice because we get so busy, we get so into our routines that we don't pay attention to the signal. And that's why the signals get louder and louder. In my case, I've been meditating since I was about 16 or 17 every day. And that's my process for being self-reflective and self-aware. And so that was a helpful tool in the arsenal. For other people, it may be journaling, but I believe that the that intuitive feeling, that that tickling, that sense that something's not quite right, looking at the people who seem to be thriving in whatever field or circle you're in, and the people thriving in Goldman Sachs were not people I was striving to be like, right? But it's this combination of the intuition plus the self-awareness to recognize it. And then the third piece is being willing to take the plunge and take the leap of faith to start making those changes. And so each of those is a defined step, but it really does start with just a feeling that something's not quite exactly how you want it to be. And then we have to couple that with obviously the self-awareness and then the courage to be scared and be okay with being scared and all the elements that go along with the change, the courage to leave what you're doing, you know, say goodbye to comfort, go into things that you know you might be terrible at the first time you do them. And all the things that face us as we look out towards a future that's different from the one we expected. Gotcha. And is that kind of, is that part of the hero's journey is, is, is making that leap, jumping full forth and getting into the, the abyss of uncertainty or uncomfortableness, things along that nature? Yes, absolutely. So the hero's journey, we all actually know the hero's journey because if you've ever talked to a screenwriter for Hollywood, it's the very first thing they learn. It's a very common template. And while it was identified by a man named Joseph Campbell, he's the one who's famous for the, the framing of the hero's journey. It's been around since forever. And like I said, every major Hollywood story, whether it's Star Wars or just some kind of cartoon you watch, will have elements of the hero's journey in it. And it just has a certain series of defined steps, but absolutely part of it is you do have to go past certain points of no return. You know, in my case, it was selling my house in San Francisco and leaving the state, right? But there, it can manifest in many different ways, but very often you have to make a critical decision to really accept the call and make a bold choice into the unknown. In King Arthur's Knights of the Round Table, they each enter the forest in their own way. There are different manifestations depending on which mythology you're talking about. But it's a story that whether it's in Hollywood or in 15th century Japanese literature, it's going to have certain common themes. But absolutely, two pieces of it are, one, you're going to hit a point of no return where you have to make a decision that you can't turn back from. And the other, which is a little more surprising to people, is you usually have to leave the place you're in. and so. Very often you have to, in my case, I went to a mountain in West Virginia, but there are many ways you can do this. Uh, but you have to put yourself in a circumstance that I would call as an interference pattern where you're not around all these reinforcing mechanisms, even if it's just for a few days. That's another really essential piece of it is taking leave of home. And then often there's another piece, which is a change in your allies, right? So the people who are around you are typically reinforcing whatever set of standards you're in. And you have to really meet a new set of allies or friends. Again, in the matrix, he meets a whole bunch of new people, whatever mythology you're looking at, they'll meet new people. And those people are the ones who lead them to the new path. Now, an interesting part of it is you end up usually coming back home at the end, but absolutely, absolutely. I would say taking a leap of faith is a big part of it. And that's often where people get held up. 
Very interesting. And how, what got you interested in Reiki? I'm just curious because that, that was my, as I was going through chiropractic school, that was something that I first dove into from an energy standpoint um, as I started my energy healing and spiritual journey on that level while I was in school. So, so I actually learned it from a chiropractor because, you know, chiropractic and Reiki have a lot of synergy to them. And I noticed he was doing Reiki on me and I became curious about it. And he had an intro class and I went to the intro class and I said, look, you know, this is interesting enough. I'm willing to take, get certified in this. So I got certified by him. He's, he's, he can teach Reiki and I learned a lot from it. It's, it's not something I did because I want to practice it on people. I, I did it in, in a way to understand this concept of energy. And maybe there are a lot of things that are happening around us that aren't so, obvious and scientific. And I have to say, I was pretty skeptical of some of it. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to take it was to, to see how my skepticism related to things. But there were some really, really cool moments in that where I said, look, there's definitely something bigger happening here at an energetic level. And tapping into that has just been helpful to just think in terms of energy. I think we so often think in terms of well, very brain, headstrong, logical, this is the path. This is how I do things. And Reiki, I think, is really an opening process. And so just exposing yourself to that and really listening to the universe more. Reiki has a bit of this self-awareness that I've been talking about that's so important to moving forward in our lives. I couldn't agree with you more on that because that was like one of the things in chiropractic is you know, the founder of chiropractic was a magnetic healer, which is kind of similar to Reiki in a sense in its own way. And it was just fascinating till I was like, okay, if I'm making adjustments, there's, there's different levels of chiropractic. There's the, the way we think of it from just a physical standpoint, but then there's the, the, the metaphysical properties of it and, and things along that nature. And I was like, how can I, cause I'm not learning it in school. How can I learn about this in a different way, but then learn how to tie it back. And that's where my journey started with Reiki. And then I went down the rabbit hole of a bunch of other things. Um, in that process. Yes. I, the one thing I've been exposed to so many people who like me were on this path where they had been quotes successful according to the quotes standards of society. And nobody needs it more other than people who've been pretty successful because the more successful you are on the path that society lays out, which is the very typical path, the less likely you are to be looking for alternatives. In my experience, I said, doing a hero's journey for me was like the Harvard business school of, of growing my spirit. And it, it's a more important part of my education than that piece. And I think just tapping into the, this other, this spiritual, this personal development side, this growth side, tapping into the universe, tapping into messages is just so essential and very much missing in our society. I think we're getting exposed to it more as we're, Right now, we have this forced interference pattern of the coronavirus, for example. So a lot more things are smacking us in the face, trying to make us aware of these various uh, interference patterns and the spiritual development that can come out of them. But absolutely, I feel like it's needed more than ever and extremely important. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I don't know about you, but for me, and I'll just, just I'll pick your brain on this. Were you the type of guy who was... Did you read a lot of books and, and try to get as much knowledge as you possibly can and keep, you know, you're probably still doing the same thing, but maybe different now? Um, or has that changed for you since um, you've gotten more into this intuitiveness, listening type of thing? So we're not as much. Mm -hmm. and, and I only so, asked. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so, yeah. So the way the way I get information for sure uh, has changed a lot, I think. The major change in my life that's been extremely helpful is I used to read a lot and reflect and try to have a very distinct plan and map everything out and just knock one block after the other. And that is not something in my experience that is in tune with how the world works. And so the major change for me is I probably read a lot less before I do something and I act a lot more, a lot earlier. And then I adjust based on what happens. And when I say I adjust based on what happens, I just start doing stuff now. So in investing, that's as simple as if I'm interested in a stock, I'll just put on a small position in that stock 
and start to see how it feels. Or if I'm interested in, let's just say a certain kind of music, I'm not going to research the kind of music, I'll just start listening to it. If I'm interested in a new business model, I'll just do the smallest possible step and experience that. Because what I found is it's twofold. The first is everything's theoretical when it's living in your mind, but when you actually do something, you're getting a taste of the experience. And, and so it's just a better way of evaluating. And it's so easy now in our internet connected world, you know, an individual has access to so many things. Uh, this solopreneurship trend we have is so amazing. So it's very easy to, to just try things out. And I think people don't try things out enough. And in my experience, doing that can be very helpful. There's a second piece to action that I've found very useful. And that's once you start acting, the universe starts meeting you halfway. And so the very first investment I did was the very first real estate investment I did. I flew to South Texas and I bought a piece of land from a guy who, you know, he gets me into his car. He was a rancher. He had a rifle in the seat and <laughs> I went and bought five acres of land for him from him for, I think it was $35,000 or something like that. And what's interesting is that particular investment, I think I ended up breaking even on. But through that, I met him, then I met a broker, then I met a lawyer, then I met another broker. I eventually determined that wasn't a place I wanted to be investing, which is why I sold the property. But that has somehow led into, now we have this huge portfolio of real estate. And it all started just because we started acting. I didn't do a bunch of research and analyze 1,000 properties. I just got started. Now, if I'm looking for a property, I will analyze 1,000 properties. But just taking that first step, whether it's, you want to write a book and you just write the first sentence or you contact uh, a ghost writer and hire them to do a test chapter for you. I think just getting out there and getting started, it's so easy to produce content. It's so easy to start a business. It's so easy to make an investment. It's so easy to take a plunge. It's so easy to join a social group. There's just so much available to us. I would just say the main thing now is just get started. That's been my experience. Just do it and learn from that because the universe will start meeting you halfway once you start acting. It doesn't meet you halfway when you're reading. You bring up some great points here. And one of the questions that's coming to my mind is why do people not do that? Right? Because I, I don't know, for me, at least growing up, it was always about, it had to be everything. It had to be strategic. Everything had to be a certain way. And now, you know, and I've had mentors come out and, and, and tell me I've had old mentors that told me that. And then I've had new mentors that said, just do it like you are. What paralyzes people, in your opinion, in your experiences, that doesn't allow them to take that action? Probably the number one thing is that people don't like the idea of failing at something. People have such a stigma around failure. And the Silicon Valley, where I live, is legendary for creating Google and all these other great companies. What people don't realize is there are companies around here failing constantly. But there's an attitude towards failure here that I think is just extremely useful, which is it's okay to fail. And so I, if I have one lesson I want to teach my kids, and I tell them this all the time, I said, guys, how often does dad make mistakes? And then I say, all day, every day. I fail all the time. I try to fail quickly. I try to learn from my failures. But if you're not willing to fail and make mistakes and lose money on an investment. The key is to really control the size of those and learn from them. But I think people don't want to fail and they also don't want to be bad at things. Whatever it is that you're doing today, let's say you're a nurse and you want to become a guitar player, but you don't know how to play the guitar. I guarantee you're going to suck at the guitar at the beginning. And guess what? It's okay to suck. Everybody who picked up the guitar the first time sucked at it. And so it's some combination of wanting to feel competent because our society and our academic system in particular rewards competence, not wanting to fail. And honestly, I think people are scared of being scared. You know, the, one of the biggest lessons I've learned is to become comfortable with being afraid of things and feeling scared and understanding fear as not something to be run, not to run away from it but to really embrace that as part of the change process. And so if there's one major lesson I've learned from the work I've done, it's 
it's, it's okay to fail and it's okay to be nervous and it's okay to be scared. And that is the river we have to cross in order to have change in our life. And I think what you're mentioning there too, I, I think that's tr- in true freedom. You know, when you just get comfortable with being, having fear, making mistakes or getting, comf- getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, um, I believe then you don't let things hold you back and you can actually live more and live more to the design of what you want to create and experience. Would you agree to that? Sure. So there's this script that people have in their, in their minds. And I believe the script is something like I will be judged in such a way if I make a mistake or these people won't accept me or I'll look bad. And look, I, I don't want to sound negative, but in a way, people don't really care so much about your failures. They actually don't really care so much, honestly, even about your successes. In the end, it's about what my grandmother said. My grandmother's favorite quote was, to thine own self be true. And if you're living into your unique expression in this world, which is your combination of talents, interests, and skills that can service the world in the the highest and best purpose, and you just keep tapping into that in a way that's in line with your values, great things are going to happen. Great things are going to happen. But yeah, it's, I, I get how hard it is. I have to say that the more I lean into fear and the more I'm just comfortable with saying, look, it doesn't matter. People, I have failures all the time and people actually don't really care. I have a joke in my company where I say, look, I want to bring seven of the best 10 ideas this year and seven of the 10 worst ideas this year. Our job is to figure out which the, which are the bad ones and do fewer of those and which ones are the good ones and do more of those. But it's okay to have bad ideas. And so I back off things all the time. I'm like, oh, that was a terrible idea. You know, I just canceled a project today because uh, someone I work with pointed something out that was just a, he said, look, you know, I just don't think it'll work for this, this, and this reason. And I was a couple days in the project. I said, you know, you're absolutely right. This was a terrible idea. I didn't think about that angle. And I just abandoned it. And that's fine. You know, it was a couple days gone. And, you know, there will be some other project I do in two months where those two days lead to some greatness. And I think without being willing to be wrong and accept when someone criticizes you, it's actually something I learned from a gentleman named Ray Dalio. He wrote a book called Principles. He, was, he, he owned a hedge fund that I worked for for a while. Really brilliant guy. But you really have to be able to just be wrong and be honest and take honest feedback. And yeah, there's a bit of an ego hit, but man, is it worth it? Because in the end, we're all in this to learn. And the only way we learn is by being honest with ourselves and having other people be truly honest with us. And there's just too many barriers to that, I think. And so the more we can be honest with ourselves uh, and we can be honest with other people, the more we're going to move forward faster. Was there something in your life that taught you that type of mindset? Was it the it, like experiences, um, <clears throat> even from a financial standpoint, I mean, investing in stocks, learning up and downs mm-hmm. and, you know, failing here and there? Like, was there something that like kind of guided you to get into that mindset to have it? Yes. Investing has been surprisingly good at teaching me humble lessons, as has plain Scrabble. Uh, I'll give the <laughs> Scrabble analogy because... I was going to say, yes, please do. Well, this, the Scrabble one is something that that it's it's happened upon me more intuitively. The Look, I, I'm a reasonably good Scrabble player, right? I'm not amazing. You know, if I competed in a tournament, I'd probably lose. But for a while, I was always trying to get a little bit better at Scrabble. And what you realize is your own hangups start to hurt your game, right? So, so for example, uh, often if somebody makes a, a huge play against you and you're feeling depressed <laughs> because you're now losing, you're going to make a bad play. And the reason you'll, you'll often dump your letters because you're just like, I have nothing. And so one of the things Scrabble taught me, for example, is play the hand you're dealt. And it took some introspection to realize I was making this mistake of dumping letters and to really just accept the situation as it is and just play my best hand with the letters I have. In terms of investing and getting lessons from that, investing is very humbling because, again, we have these behavioral biases. And I have this book, How to Stash That Cash, where I present a portfolio that I recommend for people. And I get a lot of feedback where people say, well, you can improve the portfolio this way or that way. And I said, look, 
the purpose of this portfolio is to really protect you against your own biases because there's so many counterintuitive elements of investing where really in the end to become a good investor, we need to become really good at understanding our own mistakes, weaknesses, whatever. And whether you're investing in real estate and you tend to jump on opportunities too quickly or in stocks where you don't take on enough risk or you sell when you panic or maybe you buy too much when things go down. There are all these different traits and reflecting on those and having a quantitative number that comes out of it. I sold at the bottom and I bought at the top instead of the opposite and really journaling and reflecting on that. That's that's been where I've learned a lot of lessons, these sort of hard quantitative things. Now that's because I'm a quantitative person. Obviously, if you're not quantitative, you can learn those lessons in other self-reflective ways, but seeing a number and seeing mistakes and decisions, whether it's in your Scrabble score or your investment portfolio can really, uh, can give you that real-time feedback on, on what's working and what's not. And it tells you what your biases are. And in the end, that's what's going to help us grow. And we're all in this. Look, we, wherever you start, your pace of growth over four years is what's going to matter. So this is always in 100% about how to learn best. I love that. And, and I was asking because I know like for myself, I started having, I started studying finances, technical analysis, things like that. And I was like, let me just see how I can play things and learn and so forth. And it was fascinating for me because I made a lot of mistakes and uh, but it was like things like where you're, you're, you get FOMO and, oh man, I missed it here. I didn't sell enough here. I should do this and maybe I can gain more, it, whatever it was. And I learned that I, like, I missed out on a trade or I missed out on this and, and I didn't hit the mark I wanted and I get frustrated. And then it came a point where I was like, hey, everything's going to be fine. There's always opportunities. You know, take yes. a step back. It'll all be fine. It's all going to work out. And when I get into that mindset, it's fascinating how things work. I think you point out FOMO. FOMO is one of the is one of the biggest. I'm so glad that people are talking about it now because I think it really is a decision distorter. And the other big decision distorter I see is confirmation bias. So, and you see this a lot in investing, but you see it a lot in life. People will read, for example, in politics, you know, whether you love this politician or hate this politician, people will tend to read political arguments. Uh, political articles that agree with them, right? And then they just, it, it kind of gets them more and more ingrained in things. And my answer always is, look, if you want to learn, you should be, if you always watch MSNBC, watch Fox. If you always watch Fox, watch MSNBC. You know, whatever that polar opposite is, because the only way you're going to learn is being exposed to these other ideas and not being angry and, and really listening. Uh, so that's one trend. And you had mentioned the FOMO. I think, look, FOMO is, it's, Part of human nature, and I think getting over FOMO is is an essential part of of growth as well. And it's it's something that I've had to deal with. And in terms of investing, I just listen to what Warren Buffett says, which is in investing, there are no called strikes. You can sit there and keep on waiting and miss as many investment opportunities as you want, and you just need to wait until one comes along. And so if you did miss out, it's fine because there are always opportunities. And I think that that can paralyze us to not acting, but it can also give us comfort that really, particularly on something like investing, yeah, you can wait until it is something that feels correct and aligned. Yeah. And I appreciate you bringing up the whole, the bias thing, because that's such a, it's so true, especially in today's society, we can get caught up in that so quickly with social media and only looking at one thing and just be like, yep, this is what I want to watch. Listen, pay attention to because it just fits my beliefs. It fits what I see things as and so forth compared it fits to the story. People love, people love when things fit their story. The way you learn is by seeking things that contradict your story. And it's hard to do it because it, it hurts your ego a bit. And, and it's, it just feels icky, right? But even if you, even if you admit that 1% of what the other side is of your argument is saying is right, that's, that's a good thing. Part of this is just the way media has fragmented, right? We used to live in a society where there were three major channels, right, on TV, and that's where you got your information. And by nature, they had to cover a broader swath of opinions. Now, you can find a website that literally probably agrees with you about 99%. And you'll love reading it because it just makes you feel good. You're like, yes, 
yes, no, I don't like that person. I love what this person's saying. And so you can get in these echo chambers so much more easily. And social media, like you said, has contributed to that. And I think as a society, it threatens to rip us apart a little bit. And I feel a societal obligation to listen to alternative positions. And look, I like to joke, I'm, I'm centrist enough on every issue uh, that I piss off everybody. But I, I do believe that I have, I try to be very thoughtful about each individual issue. Uh, if it's something that matters to me, I mean, obviously we can't be thoughtful about everything in our life, but we can't be, you know, 100% thoughtful on a political position and a financial position and as parents, but where it matters, I really do try to entertain both sides. And I'd say that's been very helpful in terms of my personal growth and just really breaking things down. And when I have an opinion, at least have thought about it, have experienced it, have talked to people who've done different things uh, before I actually have my own solid, strong uh, position on it. Yeah, and I, I kind of I like their approach on that because the way I kind of look at it is like you know I have the same mindset. I look at both sides of everything. I always keep an open mind, and I always say it's like a portfolio. You want to be as diversified with everything as possible when it comes to a topic or thing, so you can get learn from all that and and hear all the sides, and then you make a decision on what you think is best, and you just go ahead and move forward from it. Exactly. Plus, again, we don't we don't have to be right. Um, and I think not needing to be right is a really good ally in terms of, of growing ourselves because look, our ego wants to feel good and our ego feels good when we feel like we're right. But the ego in that case is really hindering our growth. If you just, if you're willing to listen and learn and be wrong, I think that'll, that takes us a, a long way. Couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, I want to pick your mind on, on the stuff that you do with your book and things like that a little bit. And I know you have something called the ultimate liquidity portfolio strategy. I know we mentioned yes. portfolio just a little bit ago. I want to pick your brain a little bit on that. Um, mind if you dive into that a little bit? Absolutely. So this wasn't a book. I have a co-author named Shannon Matisson who really helped bring this to life. But the the ultimate liquidity portfolio is something that really has come out of a couple of decades of investing experience. And I can just simply explain what it is because, and then you don't need to buy the book necessarily, although I recommend buying the book so that you feel confident about what it says. But this is a classic case where the world has changed around us and advice has not. So just to summarize what it is there, you really need to divide your money into buckets and each bucket has a job, right? The classic buckets that everybody knows about are you have your checking account, which you use to pay your bills. And that's not something that we invest speculatively because you don't want to take your utility bill money and put it in gold, right? Because it could go down. So that's a very obvious bucket. The job of that is to take care of your monthly expenses. Another bucket that's pretty well established and has a lot of language around it and a lot of policies and processes, and I actually think the prevailing wisdom is quite good there is retirement. So I, I will define retirement as, let's say, five years and beyond, how you deal with that kind of money. And there are systems like 401ks and 529s, and, and you know you should mostly invest in more volatile things because you don't need the money for a while and they tend to grow. So those two buckets are very well defined. But there's a third bucket that actually turns out to be very important. And it's sometimes called an emergency fund. It's sometimes called an opportunity fund. It's sometimes just called a cash fund. The name of the book is How to Stash That Cash, The Ultimate Liquidity Portfolio. And we deal with the job of that middle bucket. We sometimes call it the second bucket, but that middle bucket. And what's interesting is if you look over the last decades, what everybody says, and if you just Google right now, how do I, how, what should I do with my emergency fund? Pretty much every single website, every single article you read will say, here's, here's the prevailing wisdom. You need six months of expenses and you put it in a high yield savings account and you forget about it. So that may have made sense at various times in history. But what's happened is there's been a huge change in, in the financial world. And those huge changes probably break into a few buckets. One is we can now own through something called ETFs, exchange traded funds, the entire universe of stocks in the United States. Right, so we have access to this diverse portfolio, and you can buy it for a hundred dollars, for one hundred dollars, or even eighty-five dollars. 
you can buy exposure to every single company ranging, every single public company, ranging from Amazon to, uh, you know, a pipe manufacturing company in Indiana. Okay. The other thing is, uh, and we can likewise own a huge portfolio of U.S. Treasury bonds. Okay. With just the same, I think, you know, the uh, price of one share of an ETF is $75. So the portfolio is 88% intermediate term treasury bonds and 12% the U.S. total stock market index. Now, people think stocks are risky. It actually turns out that this portfolio is less risky than 100% bonds. And there are some weird reasons why that's the case that I go into. But so you have this trend where you can own so much diversity and have tons of chips on the table for very cheap. You have another trend where trading costs have gotten really, really, really low. Okay. And you have a third thing, which is brokers all went commission free. So whereas you used to need $50,000, let's say, to, to put in something like this, now you can do it for a thousand bucks. And what's happened is you now have access to what is a much better portfolio. Savings accounts have all kinds of issues. They suffer the highest tax rates. They actually tend to lose money over time. Everyone says, oh, my money's protected because I had $100 on year one and $103 in year five. Well, uh, you've lost money because things went up 10% in cost during that time. So the, these savings accounts make you feel like you're making money, but you're actually losing money. Whereas the ultimate liquidity portfolio over whether it's one month periods, three month periods, or three months period is far better than stocks, far better than an emergency uh, than the typical emergency fund portfolio at really preserving your money and growing it. And historically, the interesting thing is it does better than the average stock market investor does because it's it has built into it emotional uh, guardrails that make you do the right thing at the right time. So that's a that's a medium length explanation of what the book is about, but just the tight answer is 88% intermediate term bonds, 12% stocks, and you're just gonna do far better than you would with your money in, uh, in a bank. Because a bank feels safe, but it turns out that if the job of that is for that money to be there in an emergency, you definitely don't want it to go down in value, which is what it does regardless with the typical savings account being half a percent and inflation being 2%. I couldn't agree with you more on that. I, I, and that's the same in that I've been hearing that for years about you got to have your emergency fund. You got to keep it in a bank account or put it in a savings account and just let it sit there and just case just of, and I always used to make that argument. I'm like, but inflation, I'm like inflation happens, you know, two, 3% every year. I'm losing that money if I keep it there. Yeah, it's, there's something called the nominal fallacy, and I have to credit Ray Dalio, uh, I, he's the guy I said I worked with, for really hammering this home. He says that, and the, well, there are a couple things. If the nominal fallacy really says that people don't think they're losing money if the $100 that was there today is $100 in a year. But they really are, because imagine you walked into a building, uh, you played a game where you could put $100 down on a, some kind of gambling table. And you'd leave with $101 and maybe you got to pay the bouncer 50 cents, the bouncer being taxes, 50 cents on the way out. And you come out and you said, hey, I have $100 and 50 cents, but suddenly everything costs $102. People don't realize they've lost money, but it's a nominal fallacy. And part of it is, again, and it's related to this fear of failure. It turns out we suffer the pain of losses two and a half times greater than the, pain, than the benefit of an upside. So we put so much energy into preserving nominal value that we, that we actually are willing to lose money. I mean, there's a reason why banks can spend millions of dollars advertising their, their savings accounts. I mean, it's a great deal for them. Uh, I don't spend millions of dollars advertising the ULP. I actually tell you how to do it for free because it's a service, really, and, and it's a message that I think needs to be out there. Just We've done nine decades of and this is all in the book. We've done nine decades of showing how it performs in different environments. And it's just a really steady, consistent, yielding portfolio with a lot of tax advantages. I like that. I'm all about, I, I'm all about tax advantages as much as you possibly can. So that's, uh, that's, <laughs> my, that's my MO on that. Um, when it, when it, <clears throat> when it, when, do you ever get some people who say, like you said, it outperforms you know, the, the stock market with the ULP and things like that. Um, 
have you ever heard you ever had a comeback where people say like well yeah but i can because i've i've had i have friends who are financial advisors and things like that and it's always fascinating i always say i forgot the the, the way the quote goes but the one who who consist, let's just say the one who consistently does action even though it's not fast moving um over a period of time always wins the race you know and mm. it, and they'll be like well i can outperform that i can outdo this i can outdo that um ever get that opposition at all Yes. And I'll just mention a couple things. So uh, a lot of people say that, or let me put it this way, everybody seems to believe that they're going to be able to buy low and sell high. But the evidence is that they can't. Okay. So, so all kinds of studies have shown that the average investor underperforms the stock market by two to 5% a year. Uh, if people actually journal about their experiences, and we just went through a really big stock market correction, right? If people actually journal about their experiences and ask how they were feeling on March 23rd, which is when everyone was in a panic and stocks were down massively, were they actually taking money out? The logical thing to be doing is things are cheaper. You should be putting more money in. But every intuitive trait we have, and this is just comes from caveman times, you if something feels good, like if you go to a pond and there's food there, you go back to the pond. So typically we're our brain structure to do the things that feel good. The problem is in stock market, in the stock market, the things that feel good are actually bad for us. It feels good for us when stocks go up, that's actually bad for us uh, because things are more expensive, but that's when we want to invest more. We see our friends, there's this FOMO thing. And so there's all kinds of evidence uh, on an individual level, if, you, if you're reflective about it, on a collective level, if you just look at studies, that people tend not to perform well. So my first comment is, you may believe that, but essentially nobody has that experience, or very few people do. The, the second thing is, you know, that you mentioned action. And I have to say, all the brilliant investors have quite the opposite, and successful investors have quite the opposite view of action. There's a saying I like, and I'm going to get it slightly wrong, but Investing is like a bar of soap. The more you touch it, the smaller it gets. So I would argue that constantly taking action and whipping around usually results in bad outcomes for people. Now, if you steady state invest, there's an argument for that. But uh, it's just my experience that that doesn't work and that the emotional steadiness that something like a ULP gives you, for example, in, in I think this year the ULP is up a few percent, which is pretty standard. Uh, but more importantly, you know, at its worst, it was down maybe 2% or 3%, right? Whereas the stock market was down 30%. There's a lot of emotional value in that, right? When the headlines are going crazy and you're not part of it. So, so I hear people's arguments and my suggestion is just what it always is. Just put a little bit of money in this and see how you feel, you know? And if it feels good, put more money in it. I would also never argue, I shouldn't say I'd never argue. It depends on your personality. This, this is really for that middle bucket. And it's for, it's for money you need in under five years. If you're talking about retirement, then yes, I think slow and steady wins the race. But one problem I see very commonly is people aren't dividing their money into buckets. And that is really important. Each bucket of money needs a job. And if you're mixing all the buckets together, you're bound for disaster. I actually recommend having the ULP at a different brokerage than where your retirement fund is. Just for that mental separation, thinking of it as a separate bucket, I think it's extremely important. If you start conflating the two, you're just going to get into all kinds of problems. And so uh, if you do those jobs correctly, if you try it out, if you understand that action historically doesn't help investors, if you understand the nominal fallacy, I think you're going to be ahead of 98% of people out and there's a statement, I, I'm, I'm going to mess this up, or a quote, you know, what is it, 90% of uh, traders or investors lose money in the market or something like that when they try to do short trading like that, trying to guess the top and the bottom and things like that? Absolutely. The, yeah, the evidence is just ridiculous. I have, I put a video out there showing, um, I just show the stock market chart over time, and you can just see everybody buys at the top and everybody sells at the bottom. That's what makes them tops and bottoms, right? And, and again, it goes back to just, it's very natural, right? We, we as humans, as surviving entities, the things that helped us survive were to do more of the things that felt good, right? And so investing has these weird counterintuitive 
best practices, right? Uh, one of them, like we said, is is uh, you actually want to buy when there's blood in the streets, right? That's an old quote from I think the 1700s. Um, you know, you want to lean against the wind. You want to do when you most want to sell is when you want to buy, right? And and I think it's it's very natural if you follow what you believe to be right to get things wrong and investing stock market investing in particular is uniquely this way. Um, and so I don't blame people. Uh, it's just, it is really hard. And if it, you know, if it weren't hard, uh, everybody would do it, but, um, it's why we have the results we have. There are a few people and I'm, I'm one of them who actually have the opposite problem. I tend to over invest when things crash and then, you know, I get myself into problems that way. And again, I'm biased towards action more than I would like to be. Uh, and I think what I learned from this last crisis is I didn't have a written plan. But one thing I'm trying to give people with the ULP template is the ability to have a plan so that they know when the next crisis hits, how it's going to feel, how the ULP has performed. They can look at nine decades of history. We talk about four individual crises. We've got videos about it and just have that comfort level. But I think in the end, recognizing that investing is counterintuitive and that it's really hard to beat the averages and then admitting it's just like admitting, you know, the average person believes they're a great driver. Well, th that doesn't that doesn't add up. So do we have the humility to recognize that we have these emotional biases and then structure a plan around that? And uh, I think for everyone I know who's gone to the OLP, they tend to be extremely comfortable with it and over time tend to move more money towards it. Certainly that's been my experience because it just works for that bucket of cash. Yeah. And then you're limiting your risk, especially what 3%, you said two to 3% negative compared to the 30 something drop that they had just uh, what a month and a half ago. So we have a lot of analysis on how it's drawn down over time. So, so a couple of things happen. Look, when, when you have a bad year in the stock market or a bad period, you can lose 50% of your money. Okay. Uh, we like to use a term called the typical bad year. And, uh, I could probably pull it from my book, which is right behind me for the exact statistics, but let's just ballpark it. You know, a bad year, let's call it like a one out of every six years in terms of a, uh, in terms of a real return, right? This is after inflation, a bad year in the stock market could easily be 30%, right? A bad year in cash, let's just call it high yield savings, uh, is let's say down one and a half percent. And likewise, a bad year in the ULP is down one and a half percent. So a ULP is roughly the same kind of feel in a bad year. In an extremely volatile time, it'll tend to bounce down a little bit more than, than high-yield savings just because of some of the mechanics. Where you see the difference is on the upside. So over time, savings accounts actually tend to be roughly money losing, but let's just call it flat. Uh, the, the stock market, if you just invested 100% of it, over some huge long period of time, it'll tend to outperform inflation by six points over the very long term. But then again, with this huge potential downside of losing 15%, 18% in a year, that's why it's not good for this cash bucket. And um, the ULP is pretty steadily a little bit over 3%. And it turns out that, yes, there's some people who may think they're totally dedicated to stocks and are gonna get that 6%, when you adjust it for what people actually do, they're typically getting 2% above inflation. And so the average person is actually usually doing better in the ULP. Plus, they have none of this stress of when the headlines are going crazy, you're looking at your portfolio and feeling like you lost all this money. So it fits for that. Again, you know, if we're talking long term, I do think stocks really do prove out better if you're investing for five years or longer. So we're really talking about that opportunistic fund, the cash fund, the backup, the thing that makes you feel secure, the thing that makes you feel steady. The money you dig into in case you lose your job or your business takes a dive or there's a hole in your roof or your dog needs surgery at the vet, whatever that surprise is, it's that money that we're talking about. And the ULP has just done a really great job at protecting and also growing at a reasonable rate in a very tax efficient way. And uh, I'm a, <clears throat> that's why I'm a huge fan of those type of things, because it's just that, you know, just in case if it goes up or down, things like that. If it goes up, you get the benefit. If it goes down, you minimize it. And yeah, especially, right? yeah, especially, you know, what I've the other problem with with the 
with investing things you need in the short term in the stock market, which I just, I keep seeing people do. And I just, it, it's really blows my mind is usually, and let's just take the crisis that we're in right now. Usually when you need your emergency fund is when things are going bad, right? And so right now, let's say 15% unemployment, 20% unemployment, whatever you want to call it. This is the time when you need the emergency fund. And by the way, in March, stocks were down 30%. And so if you had, let's say 10,000 bucks invested uh, in an emergency fund and it had gone up to 11 and then 11,500 and now it's 8,600, right? Sure, you got the benefit of having it feel like it was 11,500 at a time, but wouldn't you have been happier if it went 10,000, 10,400, you know, 10,900, 11,300, right? And then when you go to withdraw it now, yeah, maybe it went from 11,300 to 11,150 because it was a really terrible month, right? That means there when you need it because these things tend to happen concurrently. The stock market is going down at the same time as your business is under threat. And God forbid you also get a leak in your roof at the same time. And so there's that extra layer of when you really want it, it's going to be doing pretty well. Um, and so I think that's something I can't overemphasize is that uh, when we're having crises, it tends to be concurrent with the exact time you need to tap into this emergency fund on cash. And so it's just really important to have that in a way that's moving upward, but not in an, but never having this sort of extremely volatile downward uh, pull that you can have in stocks. It just can be emotional and difficult, adding to an already difficult time. I mean, if you had your money in, if you're looking at your 401k and you just lost your job and your 401k is down 30%, that's a pretty tough environment uh, to tolerate emotionally. And it just can add a lot of unnecessary stress. No, I totally agree with you on that. Um, Real quick, how can you know people connect, learn more about this? You got the book. How can they get a hold of the book? Where is it available at? Sure. The the book is on Amazon, How to Stash That Cash. It's also on howtostashthatcash.com. The way people are most in touch with me is through my my blog, which is upwarding.com, U-P-W-A-R-D-I-N-G.com. And the product that, look, I started as a blog, but then I created a newsletter. And the thing people love is my Friday newsletter. It takes about 90 seconds to read. I have the five best ideas of the week. And those ideas can be anything from the stuff we've been talking about here to uh, a diet trick that works really well. We did an analysis on why things are stocked out on grocery shelves and how that might come back. We talked about why if you want to reduce CO2, buying a Tesla is a terrible idea. And they're just little blurbs, 15, 20 seconds with a little bit of, of fact-based stuff behind it. And so that tends to be what I'm best known for. Uh, obviously, if you're invested in, if you're interested in the investment, uh, the ULP that's on how to stash that cash. And like I said, it is on Amazon in both Kindle form and paperback. And look, I welcome anyone to send me a message via Upwarding. I do read every message. I don't necessarily respond to every message, but I, I promise I read every single message that comes through there. And uh, always happy to hear from people. And even if you just sign up from the newsletter and you're lurking for the next 10 years, I'm happy to make a connection with you. So however you want to reach me, that's great. But more importantly, stay strong out there. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's a crazy time. And let's use this as an opportunity to grow. I can't agree with you more. Like Rothschild said, you know, when there's blood on the streets, you, uh, you know, you, you, what is it again? Make it bleed or something. <laughs> you buy or something like those lines, but. You definitely want to invest when there's blood on the streets. <laughs> yes, you invest when there's blood on the streets. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things. And, uh, you know, I appreciate having you on. I appreciate sharing your story and the whole process of that and getting it from intuition. I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about what you do with ULP and all that. So I appreciate you sharing and uh, um, appreciate having you on. Dr. Vic, thanks for everything you're doing to, to move the world forward with your podcast and everything else you do. Thanks so much. And it's been a great time. I really appreciate all your questions and it was fun for me. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the podcast. For past shows, please visit www.empoweryourreality.com. I hope this show inspired you and added to your life to help you on the journey to rediscover who you really are. To connect with us on Facebook, please visit www.facebook.com forward slash Dr. Vic Manzo. Check us out on Twitter. The handle is Dr. Vic 21. 
follow us on Instagram, www.instagram.com forward slash Dr. Vic Manzo. If you were inspired by the podcast, pay it forward by sharing it with someone who you know can benefit from it. Thank you again for listening to the Mindful Experiment podcast, sharing paths to help you rediscover your infinite potential. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you found this episode to be inspirational, pay it forward by sharing with someone that you know can benefit from this. If this is your first time tuning in, please follow us, connect with us so you don't miss another amazing episode. And until next time, keep rocking and rolling.